I'm preaching this morning from the epistle to the Philippian Christians. So it will be Philippians chapter 2. And I'll begin reading at verse 5 and shall read through verse 16. So the text is Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 16. Hopefully you have a Bible and we'll uh, keep the place there open so that you can uh, not take my word for it but can read from God's word along with me. Now, the book of Philippians is in the New Testament. You're permitted to look in the index if you'd like, but if you want to search for it, it's over after the book of Galatians and Ephesians. So if you can find Romans and just keep working through there, we'll get together. Has everybody found Philippians? Follow with me as I read. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear, you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. There's an, there's an interesting phrase in verse 14. It says, do all things, or it's in verse 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, here's the phrase, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And there's a task to perform in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so when you drop out the qualifying phrases, this is what it says. 
be harmless and innocent in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's pretty tall order. It's not easy to live in the midst of contamination and not become contaminated. To live in dirt and not get dirty. I can remember as a kid, my mother would spruce me up for Sunday school. We lived out on a farm. I mean, my shoes would be shined with liquid shinola, you know, and you can't beat that. And she'd um, slick down my hair with some kind of a combination of um, perfume and axle grease called lox oil. Um, I mean, it'll really plaster your hair down, clog up all the pores too, but and she'd get me all fixed up for Sunday school, and then she'd shoo me out of the room, you know, so that she could get dressed. And I would ask her, Mother, can I go out and play? And she said, yes, you can go out and play, but you know what she's fixing to say, don't get dirty. Now, I could have saved myself a lot of lickings if I could just figure out how to do that. I mean, to go out in the dirt and not get dirty. That's, that's a big order. I mean, it's not easy to sit in an icebox and not get cold. And so he tells us to live in a, in a contaminated society but not be contaminated, and that's a big order. To live in the midst of a morally warped and perverted spiritually generation and, and, and live in the spirit of that and not catch the spirit to live in the midst of contamination and not become contaminated. Um, th that is to say that we're to live in the world, to be in the world, but not of the world. And, 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 and really and truly, that, that's not easy to do. Um, how, how do you live in the midst of contamination and not become contaminated? But the Christian life is to, live, to be lived right in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now some folks decided they'd try to escape from the world. I mean, I can't live in the midst of dirt and not get dirty, so I'm going to withdraw from the world. And so they built these great walls and become uh, monks in these monasteries. I heard a preacher tell about visiting a monastery in the northeast and he said it just surrounded by these huge high walls and these great doors that slammed on those feet, folks inside. And, 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 and the preacher knew the abbey and so he just kind of joked with him one day. He said, I suppose you have to have these big walls and these huge doors to keep these boys in. And he said the Abbey was serious. I mean, he, didn't, he wasn't in a joking mood. And he said, no, my friend, we don't, keep, we don't build these walls to keep the brothers in. We build these walls to keep the world out. It was in the whole develop of, development of, monast, of monasticism in that medieval Christianity that grew out of that situation, convinced that they could neither change the world nor resist it. They decided that the best thing to do would be to withdraw from it and pray for it. For after all, the world and the church sits at a different table. And not so, said, uh, says the scripture, um, 
That's why we're called strangers and pilgrims. The Christian life is to be lived right in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But how do you do that? The Apostle Paul says, I'm going to make three suggestions about how to remain holy in the midst of unholiness, how to be a godly man in the midst of an ungodly world. I don't think there's any question this morning that the book of Philippians is that the church at Philippi, the Philippian church, is the most popular for the Apostle Paul. It was his favorite. In chapter 1, he says, I hold you in my heart. That's a good place for a pastor to have his church. He says in that first chapter, I love you with the compassion of Christ, and I'm going to tell you how to live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation as, as, as Christian people, as godly people. First, if you live in an ungodly world, just obey as servants. I mean, if you're caught in the middle, here's the secret, how to live a godly life in the midst of ungodliness, just obey as servants. I want you to look again with me at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, now, now, it seems to be that the Apostle Paul is saying that, that these Philippian Christians uh, obeyed the Lord while he was with them. In his presence, uh, they were obeying the Lord. And he seems to be saying that there are times when it is easier to obey the Lord than at other times. And, and while he was with them, they were obedient to the Lord. I mean, they were dependent upon his presence. Now he's saying, not just in my, as in my presence you obeyed, but now much more in my absence you obey and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now these folks just loved to watch the Apostle Paul work out his salvation. I mean, they were notorious spectators. They enjoyed watching this man um, grow in the Lord. They, they enjoyed watching to see what God was going to do in his life. And the apostle said, was saying, look, I'm not going to be here always. I may never see you again. I may be martyred. Now you must accept the responsibility for your own growth. I mean, get on with the business of working out your own salvation. Does that sound like anybody you know? I mean, we even worship vicariously. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, most of us come to church, don't we, as spectators? I've even had this place where I preach referred to as the stage. You know what that makes me and you, don't you? Uh, most of us come on Sunday morning not really to encounter God or to meet God. We come to hear what the preacher has to say. And, and we, we want the preacher to spend enough time on, in the week in prayer and in Bible study so that he can, he can stand up and tell us what God says. And so we come to hear the preacher tell us what God says. It reminds me of the time when, the God, when Moses took the people of God up to the mountain and they were going to encounter God there, and they did. And it was such a traumatic thing. I mean, there was lightning and thunder and, and it was frightening and the mountain was on fire and trembled and the folks got after that was over said, hey, that's enough of that. 
I'll tell you what you do, Moses. The next time you go up the mountain and confront God, then you come back and tell us what he said. The second-hand revelation will be just fine for us. We'll come and watch you perform. Now, the apostle Paul was saying, hey, you've got to assume responsibility for your own growth, work out your own salvation. I think it says a couple of other things. I think it says that when we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, what we feel like we need to do is get those people who had lost in, in, to salvation in Christ. I mean, evangelism, winning souls, becomes predominant and, and, and has priority, and it should. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is, is this, while you're trying to get people out of a perverted society into faith, don't neglect your own spiritual welfare. For after all, your first responsibility is to yourself and your ministry is the overflow of your own relationship to God. Now watch this. I assumed the responsibility of a new church one time and and one of the questions the people asked me when I was getting ready to be called to the past, as the pastor was this question. It was a good question. The question was, to whom do you feel most responsible as a pastor? Now, I know what they were asking. They were saying, do you feel like you are to, to win people to the Lord and that is your first responsibility? Or uh, do you feel like you need to minister primarily to the older or to the young people or to the seminary students? My answer was this, my first responsibility is to me. I believe that my first responsibility is to develop a relationship with God that has meaning and depth and my ministry to you is the overflow of that. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Philippian Christians. You need to develop a relationship with God that is deep and meaningful and the overflow of that relationship will touch the lives of others. Work out your own salvation. What does that mean? I mean those folks who deny security of the believer have a heyday with that phrase. What he means is to cultivate what you've got. I mean you've got salvation, now cultivate it. You've been saved, now work it out. The word means to bring it to its intended completion. It's like being given a garden. You give me a garden, you plant it. I mean, that's not a bad idea in the first place. You, know, you give me a garden, you plant it. Plant the seed there and let those little plants grow. And then you tell me, say, okay, preacher, we've given you a garden. Now it's up to you. If you're going to eat the fruit of that garden, you're going to have to water it. You're going to have to cultivate it. You're going to have to weed it and take care of it and bring it to its intended completion. Now what Paul is saying is this. God has saved you. You have salvation. Now you bring that to its intended completion. If you're going to enjoy the fruits of it, you're going to have to work at it. It's practical obedience. You're not going to bring your salvation to its intended completion by sitting at home watching preachers on television listening to tapes. It's practical obedience. It's working out what God has worked in. And he gives us an example. He says the example for that working is Christ himself. Just be as obedient as he was. And it says in this passage that he became so obedient that he was willing to die. I mean be as obedient as Jesus. Just be obedient. Now you say, I'm afraid I can't do that. Yes, you can. Notice what, he gives us some encouragement. 
He says, for it is God who works in you. You know what you're to do as a Christian in, in developing, bringing your salvation to its, its intended completion? Let me tell you what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to just respond to God's grace. Just respond to God's grace. It's a strange kind of, of servanthood. The servant normally just responded to the commands and demands of his master. He said, now, in order for you to bring your salvation to its intended completion, you just respond to the grace of God in your life. Marvelous thought. I mean, God has, bringing, God has brought into your life the prompting and the performance, the desire and the dynamic. All you have to do is make yourself available to Him. The only thing that's necessary is to bring to Him a willing heart to work out what God has worked in. For you see, whatever God demands, God supplies. He demanded a Savior and He supplied one. He demands righteousness from you and He supplies it. The righteousness you have is not your own. You're dressed in His righteousness. God demands of you that you work out, your, that you bring your salvation to its intended completion and he provides the wherewithal to do that. Just responding to the dynamic. How did you get saved in the first place? By responding to his grace. How do you grow in grace? By responding to his grace. Now how do you, how do you live an ungodly, how do you live a godly life in an ungodly world? Just by obeying a servant. Secondly, by living as sons. Would you look at verse 14 and 15 with me again? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, sons of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Obey as servants, live as sons. Now this is what he's saying. He's saying, you be this way in order that you may prove that you're son of God. Now, now here is this crooked and morally warped and spiritually perverted generation. Here are the Christians who are saying, hey, I'm a son of God. My father created the heavens and the earth, and I'm an heir of God. And my, my elder brother is Jesus Christ, the Lord himself. That was their boast. And the crooked and perverse generation said to them, okay, prove it. If you, if you are what you say you are, prove it. Before you can claim sonship, you've got, you got to show some evidence of that sonship. And he gives us five ways in which that happens. Two of them are negative, three of them are positive. Watch this. He said you must live in humility. That is, do all things without grumbling. Live in humility. You see, it is the arrogant man who grumbles about life. Humility, let me give you a definition of humility. Humility is accepting from God's hand, God's way. It is bowing the knee in submission. The arrogant man grumbles about what God gives him in life. The humble man Re responds to the grace of God with gratitude and accepts with gratitude what God has given him. Vance Havner has a sermon called The Forgotten Beatitude. Takes that sermon from the experience of John the Baptist. Here was John the Baptist in prison 
and, and, and he sends this emissary to, to ask of Jesus, are you, the, are you really the Messiah or do we need to look for somebody else? And Jesus said to these guys, who this emissary, he said, you go back and tell John the Baptist that everything's running just about according to schedule. And then he quoted what Vance Havener calls the forgotten beatitude. He said, blessed is he who is not offended in me. And Vance Havener paraphrases that statement by Jesus like this. Are you listening? Blessed is he who doesn't complain about the way I run my business. Blessed is he who doesn't complain about the way I run my business. Do you? Who do we think we are to complain about the way God runs his business? I mean, who are we anyway? I mean, who's in control here? And, and God got with old Job after Job's crying and complaining and screaming. And God got with him in that 38th chapter of Job. You read it sometime. And after Job finished his list of complaints, God said, okay, now, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? And where were you when I set the winds in the heavens and I laid the foundation for the mountains and gave the horse his strength and he went for two whole chapters just making old Job realize, hey, I'm not really in charge of, charge of this universe. What right do I have to grumble about the one who is? You want to prove yourself as sons? Live in humility. Secondly, said, live in unity without disputings. Now, he doesn't say do all things without disagreeing, but he does say do all things without quarreling. And it's a word that means to gripe and, and bicker and fuss all the time. And it has a legalistic connotation. It's the picture of a man in a business meeting, a Southern Baptist church, and he, he, he argues the call that comes from the church. The church votes something uh, and, and, the, and the majority agrees, but he doesn't like that. And so he goes out during the week and all he does is quarrel and gripe and fuss about it. And the only motive he has is, is, it, is this, it wasn't what I wanted. He said, if you want to prove yourself to be sons, do all things without quarreling about it. And then he gives us three positives. The first two have to do with how, we've, how we're seen by men, how we, how we live before others. He said, I want you to be harmless. Harmless. The word means to be, to have a character that's impeccable, an unimpeachable character. It means that you have a life that no one can point a finger at honestly and say, that's wrong, his life. I mean, nothing in your life that someone can honestly point his finger at as something wrong. Now, there are going to be people who may accuse you of things dishonestly and falsely, but to, be, to, to have a life that no one can honestly accuse. And, and he says, innocent. And the word means unmixed motives. It's like the innocence of a child. You know, a child will just tell you exactly what he thinks. And the only motive he has is his, is his innocency, you know. It, it, to, to have an innocent motive. And the word is the picture of being turned inside out. It's like you, you take your T-shirt that your son has, you're going to iron, and you turn it inside out. 
and you can tell which is the inside and which is the outside, of course. He's, it, it, the, the picture here is that you can turn a person inside out and the inside looks the same as the outside. I mean, what he is really in his heart is what he professes in the world and lives in the world. He's the same inside as he is outside. Jesus said the harlots will go into the kingdom before the Pharisees. Why? Because they were operating on a hidden agenda. They were saying one thing, but they were another thing inside. Then he said, how am I going to prove that I'm a son? By living above reproach. Harmless and innocent have to do with what other, how others see us. Above reproach has to do with how God sees us. And the picture comes from the, Jew, from the Jewish ceremonial practice where the high priest would take the animal and with careful scrutiny, with deliberate eye, he would hold that lamb up to his trained eye to see if there was one spot or blemish on it, to see if it was fit for the service of God and if it was without spot or blemish, it would be used in the service of God. Now, now, now watch this. He's saying, sons of God ought to be such that God can hold you up to his trained eye and find no fault in you. I think one of the worst tragedies I can imagine would be that one day we'd stand before the judgment of God, judgment seat of Christ, and God would say, I had such plans for you. I wanted to use you in such a marvelous way, but I couldn't use you because you had blemishes in your life. Live as sons. How do you live a godly life in the midst of ungodliness? How do you live in dirt and not get dirty? Obey as servants. Live as sons. Shine as lights. Um, did, did you hear what he's saying? That the life of the Christian, God's people, ought to be luminous, brilliant, radiant. Radiant, radiant. Now, in the universe, there are two orders of light. There is the order of the sun, and there is the order of the moon. The sun is the source of light. The moon is the reflector of it. Now, when you study this, this passage in the original language, when he talks about shining as lights, he's talking about the latter, the reflector. He didn't tell you to be the source of light, you and me. He's telling us to be the reflectors of it. Now, let me just say two or three things about the moon. First, the darker it is, the brighter it shines. Now, on one hand, he gives us a tall order that is, to live in the midst of contamination and not be contaminated. But, and so we kind of throw up our hands and say, well, that, that's just not possible. Yes, it is. 
For the darker it is, the worse it is, the brighter God's people should shine. I'll tell you a second thing about the moon. When you see the moon shining, you know the sun's taking care of his business. Now, you've probably never done this, but you might try it sometime. You go outside at night, you look at the moon, and you might say, well, I know the sun's shining. I know the, I know the sun's taking care of his business somewhere. You know, there are a lot of people who do not know that Christ is still in business because they've never seen him reflected in human life. You know what an eclipse is? An eclipse is what happens when something comes between the source of light and the reflector of that light. You know, the only thing, my friend, that will keep you from reflecting the light of Christ is for the world to come between you and Him. What has hidden His face from you? What has veiled Him from you? What has come between you and the Lord that you no longer reflect Him? Moses came down from the mountain and so great was his encounter and so marvelous was the brilliance of God reflected in his life that he had to wear a veil over his face to keep the brilliance from, from blinding the people. And it wasn't long, however, until that brilliance disappeared, but he kept the veil over his face, not to hide the brilliance, the glory, but to hide the fact that the glory had departed. What has come between you and the Lord? Why is it that you're no longer able to reflect the light of Christ? Has the world come between you and the Lord? Now he tells us how we can shine his lights. I'll just brush those and then I'm through. By holding forth the word of life. That's how you shine as lights. By holding forth the word of truth. Now there are two thoughts in that holding forth phrase. The first thought is, it's the idea of handing or holding out to a thirsty man, a drink of water. What a beautiful picture. Here's a dying world. Here's a thirsty world. Here are God's people holding out to that thirsty world a drink of water. Here, here's a starving child, j just like you see on, on television from Ethiopia, etc. And, and somebody comes with a cup of rice, a cup of milk, and holds out that life to that child. It's the same idea. It's holding out to a devastated world hope and life. That's what shining has lights. That, that's what it means to reflect the life of Christ. The second idea in that phrase, and sometimes translated in other translations is, holding fast to the word of life. And they go together because I'm convinced that you'll never hold out to anyone except that which you're holding fast to yourself.
And what Paul is saying is this. You get a good grip on the word of life. Believe it. Trust it. Obey it. And then you pass it on to someone else. Now the question is this. Are you... Are you, are you listening? Are you correcting the spirit of this age or are you catching it? Are you an eraser or a blotter? Son, go out and play but don't get dirty. Would you pray with me? Father, each one of us is absolutely certain that the only way a morally warped and perverted society will ever be corrected is that God's people will obey His servants and live as sons and shine His lights. And I pray that there will be today a new commitment to that. For Jesus' sake, the sake of His kingdom, for it's in His name I pray. Now our invitations this morning are three. Listen carefully. The first invitation this morning is for you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. God will give you salvation. He'll, he'll, he'll give salvation to you. Now it'll be up to you to bring it to its intended completion, but He will give salvation. If you'll repent, that means turn away from, make a, make a, make a turn from your sin, the life where you've been in control and turned toward Jesus Christ by faith. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The first invitation is for you to come to receive what God and God alone can do for you. That is, save you give you new birth, new life. The second invitation, and these are simultaneously given, offered, is for those of us who live in this age to make those necessary steps, rededication and repentance and commitment that will enable us to obey His servants, live as sons and shine as lights rededication of life or whatever. The third invitation this morning is for you to join the church. The best way, there's no other way. If the Holy Spirit had any other way for us to do God's work in the world other than the, and through the church, you would have told us. Come and join the church. Put your life here so you can be a part of a fellowship, supporting, being supported by that fellowship living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, 
harmless and innocent, above rebuke. Would you do it? We're going to be praying that you'll step right out, right at first. Some have said to me, they're coming today. I'll be waiting for you to come. Our folks are praying for you to come while we stand to sing you do it. certain you've done everything God has wanted you to do? Have you done everything that He has spoken to your heart to do? Are you really obeying His servants, responding to His grace? Is there that person yet to make that kind of uh, obedient response that will be that will please the Lord? If, if so, we want to give you another opportunity, a second chance, a little bit longer. Maybe as this young lady, you've professed faith in Christ, you know, with someone else, and you need to come publicly to declare that faith before men. By your coming, you're saying, listen, I've been saved, and I'm not ashamed of that. I'm a Christian, and I'm glad. I want to be baptized. Maybe there are some of those yet who have not done that. You'll need to come. Why don't, why don't you come right now? Let's settle the matter right today. While we sing together, we'll wait just a stanza or two for you to come. Would you do it? If God prompts your heart, would you not do it? Let Him lead you to do what He wants you to do, and then you just do it. While we sing together, just as I am. <laughs> 